Heavenly Father, we thank you for just uh, the gift Brooke Fraser's song to us that when we're in the desert, we will turn to you and find in you that you are a Lord who provides. And so, Father, for whatever season we're in in life right now, and some of us, um, we're in a desert season, we pray that whatever season we'd, we'd find ourselves in, that you would make yourself present to us, that you'd sustain us, protect us, feed us, and lead us in the way you'd have us to go. We pray that we wouldn't be seduced away from you, but we'd stay trusting you through whatever happens. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, uh, if you ask people uh, on the street or even in church, if you ask people uh, what the most frequently repeated commandment in the Bible is, what would people say? Turn to the person next to you, ask them quickly, what is the most repeated question in the Bible? Uh, Not question, sorry, what's the most frequently repeated commandment? Most frequently repeated commandment. Okay, not giving you much time. Anyone know what it is? Call it out. Say again. Do not fear. Okay, someone's been reading my notes. Um, yeah, that's what it is. I think that would take us, well, it, it would take most of us, but did it take anyone by surprise? Who guessed do not fear? A, a couple of people, right? I mean, it, there was a dead giveaway on the front sheet of your booklet, right? Um, that is my topic tonight, fear, so you could have guessed. But this is the most repeated commandment in the Bible. It isn't always say your prayers. It isn't love God, love your neighbor. The most repeated commandment in the Bible is this. Do not be afraid. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor during World War II, and he was imprisoned and ultimately executed just one week prior to the end of World War II. Uh, He was a Christian pastor who protested the Nazi regime, and uh, he knew what it was to fear. And this is what he says about fear. He says, fear is somehow or other the greatest enemy of the Christian. He says, it crouches in people's hearts. It hollows out their insides. Fear secretly gnaws and eats away at all the ties that bind a person to God and to others. He says the greatest enemy a Christian Christian will face. And tonight we're continuing a series in the surprisingly relevant Old Testament book, Numbers. It's the story about what happened to the people of God, Israel, after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And he'd promised to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, which we know as the present-day geographical area of Palestine. The book of Exodus, it tells us how God liberated them from Egypt. And the book of Numbers tells a story about what should have taken 11 days from Mount Sinai to the edge of the the land promised uh, to them. And on that way, the book of Numbers shows us that they were seduced. 
This book shows us why it didn't take 11 days, but it took them 40 years to get from Mount Sinai and into the Promised Land. And it's because they were seduced by hunger, by envy, today by fear, next week by impatience, greed, and sex. And that's what makes it such a relevant book, isn't it? Because if you're a Christian, you are on a journey from this life to the next. You're on a journey from this city to the heavenly city. You are in transit. You're a pilgrim. This world is not your home. You're waiting for the promised land which God has promised to you, a land better than flowing with milk and honey, a land where there will be no sickness, no death, no tears from our eyes. There will be perfect justice, perfect love, and perfect peace. And we await that day, don't we? And at the moment, we're traveling to that, that world. And it is so easy as we travel through this world to be distracted, to be seduced by other things. And the danger is, well, what if we didn't make it What if we didn't make it there in the end? And that's what makes this book such a relevant book. Last week, we looked at the seduction of envy, the week before hunger, and today it's fear. And a helpful way of looking at these uh, problems which we all face is to see them as diseases. And I did this last week, and I'm just going to use the same structure this week. We're going to look at the condition, the cause, and the cure to this disease, uh, fear in our lives. Same, same structure as last week, but different topic and different passage. So firstly, what is this condition? What is fear? Well, at this point in the story, Israel stood, they stand on the brink of entering the promised land. God saved them from Egypt with a mighty hand. He's led them through the Red Sea. He's fed them in the wilderness when they ran out of water, he, he, he made Moses strike a rock and water flowed from the rock. He's protected them from the harsh sun. And finally, they stand now in Kadesh, on the, ed, the southern edge of the border to the land promised to them. They're poised on this southern border. The land is in front of them, within their reach. And God commands them to send out 12 spies. Twelve scouts to examine the land, one from each of their tribes. And Moses says to them, verse 17, if you can see it there, he says to these twelve scouts, go up through the Negev and onto the hill country, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled? Or are they fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are, the tree, are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Moses must love grapes or something like that. It was the season of the first ripe grapes. And so we see, you know, this week I was, I was sitting down with our staff, with Steph and Mike, and I think the student ministers were there. And I asked them, why did God do this? I mean, why is God sending in these spies into the land? He knows what they're going to see, that they're going to be terrified, that they're going to come back with a bad report and everyone's going to get... Why does he send them in to check it out? Why does he just send the whole people in? And then they'll be in there, they have to fight their way through it. Why does he send these spies in? Doesn't he set them up for failure? What is his purpose? And uh, they were very helpful. Um, uh, they helped me see that actually it was to encourage them. 
He wanted them to know before they walked into it that God's promise really was true. God had promised a land flowing with milk and honey. And these spies were to go in and check out, is the milk flowing? Is there lots of honey? How big are the grapes? Is it a bountiful? So he sent them in to encourage them, but also to humble them. God wanted them to see that this land was full of very, very, very strong people and that left to themselves, there's no way they're going to be able to go in and kick these people out of this land. They would have to trust God. That's why he sends the scouts in. He says, go in, I want you to see that, yes, my promise is true, and yes, you're going to have to trust me as you go into this. So the scouts go in and they walk from the south end of the land all the way up to the north and back again. And they go past this place called Hebron, where the founding fathers of Israel were buried. Abraham and Sarah were buried in this place called Hebron. And it would have reminded them that God's promise is true. God had promised Abraham that one day his descendants would go into Egypt. They'd be enslaved there, but 300 years later they'd come back to this land he had promised them. And here you have these scouts, they see Hebron. They would have been reminded of God's promise. He's finally brought us back to this place God has promised us. And finally, they walk up to the north and then down to the south, back to the people. They realize how good this land is. Look at verse 23. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. This bunch of grapes is so huge that it takes two men to carry it on a pole. And then verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Absolutely safe. They faced no opposition. There was no apparent danger. And yet when they get back... Ten of the twelve scouts bring a bad report to Moses and the people. Pick it up from verse 27. This is what they say. They say, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Incredible. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, who was one of the two who brought a different report, one of the spies, one of the scouts, he silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in, all those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. The Nephilim are this mythological giant, uh, this mythological race of people who are giants. Right, so they're kind of exaggerating here. Like, we saw the Nephilim. Like, we saw these great northern giants. Like, they're kind of exaggerating. They say, they say, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And then if you've got your Bible, chapter 14, which we're going to dip into tonight. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept 
aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt. If only we died in the wilderness. So there you have a minority report. You have the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, who go in and say, Hey, it's, they're, they're pretty big, but God's on our side. We can do this. And then you've got the majority report, the ten spies, who come back and say, We can't. They both agree on the facts. It's an amazing land. They both agree that the people are huge, and yet both reports, there is a difference in where they put the but. The defining but for the ten scouts is that the people who inhabit the land are huge. They are big, and their cities are fortified, and they live in every part of the land. It's just crowded with these giants, uh, and as a result, they're afraid. And you know what happens when fear grips your heart? They start exaggerating. They're like, they're, they're giants. They're, they're like, you know, they're these mythological Nephilim. You know, they're saying, the, the Nephilim were there. I don't know what the ancient equivalent is, right? But, you know, giants. We don't believe in giants, do we? Uh, and, but essentially, that's essentially uh, what they're saying. Fear grips their heart. And they say, we feel the size of grasshoppers. Fear. They're seduced. They're seduced by fear. And this whole chapter and the next chapter, it's all about fear. Fear is a natural part of our lives. And we all face a number of fears as we go through life. And just the experience of fear, there's no problem. We all face fear. The the real problem is, well, how do we deal uh, with our fears? And one of the strongest fears we all face is the fear of death. And um, there's this whole movement right now, though, which teaches that actually there's nothing unnatural about death. You hear this all the time. Uh, You hear people saying that death is just a natural part of living, absolutely natural. There's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, You hear some people saying it's just it's 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 just a it's a beautiful sight to see the sun going down, the a star going down, and that's the way it is when you see someone you love go down, slipping into the quiet. You hear that? I don't know if you've heard that kind of thing before. And here, I'll tell you straight up, it's, it's a lie. It's not true. If you've ever seen someone lowered into a coffin and lowered into the ground, it is utterly unnatural. There's nothing natural about it. I had a 95, 96-year-old grandfather die last year. And I preached and I led the service and I wept throughout the service. I just couldn't get through it. My beautiful daughter Evie just came and gave me a hug around my leg. And she still talks about it with me. She says, Toby, you remember, Dad, you remember when? <laughs> she, said, she said, you know, she says, Dad, you remember when you were crying up front that time giving a sermon and I came and gave you a hug? It was... He's 95. People would say, oh, it's, it's natural. You know, he's old. I just couldn't get through that. It is thoroughly unnatural to be separated from the people you love. And we should never get used to it. Even as Christians who see the light through death, we have someone to trust that will get us through death. It is still out the last enemy which Jesus has to put down, death. 
We should never get used to it. We should never explain it away. We should never not mourn at the sight of death. It is always traumatic. It is always wrenching. Even for people who know Christ and who trust Christ, it is a dark door. Even as we slip into the light, we all have to go through it. And yet I think our world brainwashes us. We brainwash ourselves into thinking that death isn't scary. Tim Keller has a brilliant illustration about this. He was uh, in a sermon of his. He, he shares about this silent movie that Charlie Chaplin was in, where Charlie Chaplin, he was this prisoner, and he had a, a, a ball and chain attached to his leg. And uh, he, he tries to get away with it, but it just follows him wherever he goes, right? And so he, he comes up with this great idea. He digs a hole, he buries the ball and the chain, and then he stands there, and then he goes to run away. And he's stuck, he stops, because the, the ball is in the ground. And Tim Keller, he says, that's what we do like with death. He says, you know, the way we try and deal with our fear of death is to make believe that there is nothing to be afraid of we pretend and we just bury our fears that's what our society does and as christians we know better death is the last enemy and it is something we should fear and then another fear is the fear of rejection i'm afraid if i get near people that they will see me they'll they'll see what i'm really like and that they'll reject me the fear of rejection another fear is the fear of the future My life, it feels out of control. I'm afraid what's going to happen in the future. I can't control it, and I'm terrified about that. Many people are terrified about the future. Then you have the fear of public speaking. Uh, You know, some people are so scared of speaking in public that they get up in front of people, their mind goes blank, they open their mouth, nothing comes out, and everybody stares at you going, what's the matter? I remember when I was in high school, I think it was year 10 English, and I had to get up in front of my class and present this, this speech. And I, was, uh, uh, I never missed a class at school. I was naturally inquisitive, so I enjoyed learning, right? I was, you know, a bit of a geek. That's probably the case. But anyway, so I never truanted. But this I, I really wanted to truant that class. I just couldn't think of anything worse than standing up in front of my class and giving a speech. It made me so sick and terrified. Um, but you know, these days I'm much more in, I'm much more comfortable in front of a crowd than I am in a crowd. I'm quite happy. I could speak to a crowd of a thousand, ten thousand. It wouldn't make me as scary as being in a crowd of ten thousand. I get terrified just meeting groups of people that I've never met before. It absolutely freezes me. And that's why, you know, welcoming at this church is such an important thing. Because when I, even as a pastor, when I go and visit other churches, I'm absolutely terrified. But when there's great welcoming, that fear just evaporates because I know that someone's looking out for me. And that's why as a church, we've got to be really attentive to welcoming here. All that's to say that we all have fears, and they are a natural part of life, but the question is, how do we cope with our fears? Because our fears, if we let them, they can undo us, they can destroy us, and they can take us to hell. I don't say that lightly. That's what happened to these people. Some of them 
They walked away from God because of their fears and it actually took them to hell. You see, fear exposes our spiritual life rafts, as one writer says. Fear exposes the, the, the things that we cling to to make sure we don't sink in life. Every one of us has some kind of spiritual life raft that we cling to so that we wouldn't sink in life. Some of us, another metaphor here, uh, fear exposes our, secu- our spiritual security blankets. Those things that we hold on to to make us feel warm and secure amidst the uncertainty. Did anyone grow up with a blankie? Yeah, that's what I'm talking. I had a friend who grew up with a blankie. Even into his high school years, he'd bring his blankie to my house for sleepovers. It was kind of weird, right? But, <laughs> but you know, he had this blankie, this thing which ma- would make him feel warm and secure. And for Israel, God was meant to be their blankie. He was meant to be their life raft. He was meant to be the thing they turned to when they were feared, when they feared these people. And yet what happens? Fear seduces them and it steals them away from the God that they're meant to trust and it takes them back to their former master, Egypt. They say, they, they say let's raise up a leader to take us back to Egypt. They're saying God isn't our spiritual life raft. He's not our spiritual blankie. There's no security there. There's no warmth. There's nothing for us to trust in there. Take us back to Egypt. One writer says uh, that even though they were technically out of slavery, in their hearts internally, their spirits were still slaves to Egypt. Their master was still all the security which Egypt provided, even though they were slaves back there. And it's true, isn't it? God can save you. If you're a Christian, God can save you. He can free you from the things which used to enslave you, and you can be very glad about that. And yet, when some kind of insecurity comes into your life, some kind of uncertainty, and you become scared, and you start becoming afraid, you can go back to those old masters for comfort, and you, re- you become enslaved. You run back to your spiritual blankie, and you don't actually go to God. That's why what you do with your fears, they reveal what is going on inside of the inside of your heart. They show where your trust really is at. They show where your trust is really at. And that's what happens here. These, this is the condition. Their fears reveal the state of where their hearts are at. They don't really trust God. And that brings me to the second point, the cause. What is the cause of their fear here? When you look at their fear at the heart of it, if you look to the root of it, if you get underneath all the symptoms and you identify the disease, what is the disease? And really, the disease is this, at the deepest level, that really, if we cling completely and utterly to God, Ultimately, he'll just let us down. At the heart of these people's fear, which seduce them away from God, at the heart of it is this belief that if we have to depend fully, entirely, utterly on God, he'll let us down. That's right at the heart of how these people treat God. And so if you look at chapter 14, verse 9, if you've got a Bible or your phone there, 
This is Caleb and Joshua speaking. And this is what they say. They say to the people, they say, Don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of these people. Do you hear that? They are saying, they are saying that to rebel against God and to be scared of these people into whose land they're meant to go into, it's the same thing. To be scared of these people, that is to rebel against God. That's what they're saying. If you look at verse 11, God says to Moses, he says, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? At the heart of it, fear, some of our fears, it really at the heart is treating God with contempt. Do you know what contempt is? Contempt, I had to look it up because I didn't know what, what really the word means. But this word contempt, it means to treat something as worthless. To show contempt for something is to not have regard for it, is to not factor it into your thinking. That's what they're doing here, isn't it? They bring back this bad report, verse 27 of chapter 13. They say, we went into the land to which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit, but but what? But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. They, they don't factor God into their thinking. They don't say, hey, it's really good. The people are massive, but you know what? God has promised us this land. He's on our side. He's going to fight for us. These people, they've got no protection over them. We've got God over us. We can do it. They show utter contempt for the Lord because they don't factor him into their thinking. They don't factor him. They don't understand that they don't understand biblical mathematics, which is one person plus God is greater than everything. That's biblical mathematics, right? One plus God is greater than anything. It doesn't matter how big these people are. God is bigger. And so notice they, they, they call this the land to which you sent us. Do you notice that, verse 27? They, they say... We went into the land which you sent us. Fascinating. Listen to how Moses refers to the land. He refers, it, he refers to it as the land God has promised to give to us. Listen to how God refers to the land in verse 1 or 2 of chapter 13. He calls it the land he is giving to them. And notice how these spies refer to it. We went into the land into which you sent us. They've completely missed factoring in God's promises into their thinking. They treat God with contempt. They treat him as though he is insignificant. When you're allowing fear to take you away from God, essentially you're saying God is a small thing. God is smaller than this thing. When you allow fear to control your Christian life, so that you start doing things out of fear which you know to be wrong. You're showing contempt for the Lord. You're not factoring him into your thinking. You're not thinking. And that's, these, that's where these people are at. That's the cause. It's a lack of trust in the God who is powerful enough to deliver them into their, this land. Then thirdly and finally, what is the cure to this kind of fear? 
What is the cure to this kind of fear that abandons God at this first sign of danger? Well, it's to think. The problem is they don't factor God into their thinking. They're not trusting him. They're not thinking about his power and wisdom and goodness and love and mercy. They're not thinking about that. And so the cure really is to think. It's to think, is he trustworthy? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says that Satan doesn't fill us with hatred for God. That's not how any of us are seduced away from God. Satan doesn't fill us with hatred of God. What does he do? He fills us with forgetfulness for God. Isn't that true? That the way we're seduced away from God is really we just forget him. Have you forgotten God? There's so much in this passage that reminds us of who God is. I wish I could spend the next hour with you going through this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to spend another 10, 15 with you. But I want to show you two things that are reminded here. Firstly, God's promises. Look at verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving the Israelites. Is there a question mark in that sentence? Is he saying, send some of the men in to explore this land which I might give to you guys? You know, perhaps I'll give you this land. Perhaps I'll be strong enough to kick out the Canaanites from this land. Is there any maybes in there isn't a single maybe. This is a bald promise. In other words, everything that they were to see as they went through this land was to be seen through the lens of God's promise that are live and act in a way which demonstrated they were trusting God's promises and yet they didn't they didn't think about God's promises they allowed the promises to slip out of their mind they saw the grasshopper they, they felt like grasshoppers in front of the the giants and they said where's my blankie and they said, let's, let's, go home to, let's go home to Egypt. One writer, Thomas Wilcox, he says this. He says, judge not Christ's love by providences, but by promises. He says, judge not, don't judge God's love by providences. Providences are nice things that happen to you in your day-to-day life. That's how many of us judge God's love. Wow, I've got a parking spot. God must love me. Wow, I've got a new job. It's a good job. God must love me. Wow, I didn't get a job. Wow, I didn't get a a parking spot. Wow, it rained on my eight-year-old daughter's birthday. Wow, God mustn't uh, love me, right? We, We do that. We judge God, God's love, by his providences. And Thomas Wilcox, he says, no, 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 no. Judge God's love by his promises. He says the reason you've got to do that is because your experiences are very powerful. They often feel more powerful than God's promises, don't they? Here you have these spies, they go into the land. Their experience of how big and strong and dangerous these people in the land, that experience, it makes them judge God's love negatively. They're not depending on the promise God had made to them. Judge God's love, not on the basis of providences, not on the basis of your experiences, but on the basis of his promises. That's the first element of his character we see here. And then the second one, and I'll just only give you two. Finally, we're reminded of God's power, aren't we? 
Moses points us to God's power. That's why the spies go in. They were meant to bring back a report which told everyone that this wasn't going to be a piece of cake. In fact, we're going to need God to send us into this land. We're not going to be able to do it ourselves. That was the message they were meant to come back with. And yet they didn't, they, they had no regard, they showed contempt for God's power. You know, Vine Church started because we thought it would take a miracle. I'm not lying. We, we didn't think it were possible. We thought it would take a miracle for God to reach successful, attractive, people who've got their life together, urban kinds of people. We thought that kind of people is just not going to come to know Jesus unless God does a miracle. And we wanted to be a part of that miracle and see the group of people that he would gather. God's people are always caused to look at impossibilities and say, yeah, it's possible because God's factored in here. One plus God is greater than anything. Come back and notice chapter 14, verse 22. God says, you've shown contempt for me and you haven't had regard for the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt. It's fascinating what he's saying here. He's saying, if you're afraid, God is going to let you sink right now. You're afraid that really we're on the edge of the promised land. I've rescued you from this massive superpower, Egypt, and we're moving into this much smaller, much less powerful group of people. And you really think this last little bit in the plan, I'm, I'm going to kind of drop you at this stage? You know, it'd be a bit like, um, it'd, be, it'd be a bit like uh, an army taking over Sydney. And God's saying, hey, I'm going to help you push out this army, right? And we push them out of Sydney, and then we go up to Gosford, and this army is still in Gosford. And then we all quake and tremble because we're like, God's not going to help us. You know, that's what it's like. It's like the mega power Egypt. God has delivered them from Egypt. How will he not bring them through into his promised land as well? This is so, so relevant. Do you remember Romans chapter 8 where God says, He who did not spare his own son for you, but gave him up, how will he not also give you all things? Do you get the significance of that verse? What the Apostle Paul's saying there is, if, if God has done the extraordinary of giving his son to redeem you from slavery to sin and, and the judgment, of, if he's given his own son to death on the cross, how will he not also do everything else that is necessary to achieve his plan for your life? That's where these people are. They've been redeemed from... E the, the, the seas were parted. If he's done that, how will he not... Just do the final part of the plan. See, they doubt God's power at this point. And so how do we deal with our fears as we go through life? We deal with them not by saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. That's not how you deal with your fears. You deal with your fears by thinking, who is it the God I trust? Is he bigger than every giant I face in my life? Am I really a grasshopper standing next to him? That's how you deal with the fears in your life. 
You repent for making other things your blankies. You repent for making other things your spiritual life rafts. And you think into who God is. You look at his precious promises in the scriptures. You refuse to judge his love based on your experiences. You judge his love based on his promises. And then you face the uncertainty of the future with confidence. Because he know, you know he is with you. And he will go before you. A couple of years ago, my, um, my mother-in-law very generously took our whole family over to Fiji for a holiday. And on the plane trip over there, I picked up uh, Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. And it's a remarkable book about two men, Sidney Carlton and Charles Darnay, who look very similar in life. They both fall in love with the same woman. However, Charles Darnay is sentenced to death in the uh, to death and um, death in the book, and he's fallen in love with this woman. He's married her, and it's set during the French Revolution. And he's on death row. He's about to get the guillotine, and the night before. He's to be executed. Uh, Sidney Carl, Sidney Carl, Carden, he steals into this prison. And they look very similar. He steals into this man's cell and he says, hey, let's swap places. And Charles Darnay, he's like, get lost. What are you talking about? There's no way. And Sidney Carlton says, no, no, no. I want to trade places with you. I love your wife. She's better off with you in her life. And I love your daughter. It would be much better for, you, for, for them if you were alive and I took your place. And Charles Darnay says, don't be ridiculous. And so Sidney Carlton, he smacks him across the head. And Charles Darnay, he passes out. And Sidney Carlton, he, he swaps clothes with him. He puts his clothes on and he takes his clothes off and puts him on Charles Darnay. And he has some friends take the, the half-groggy Charles Darnay out of out of the prison and into safety, and they return back to his wife. And it's fascinating. The next morning, he's, on, he's in the line to get executed. And this woman who he'd met the previous day, she was a, a simple seamstress. She comes up to him and she starts talking to him. And she realizes that there's something different, and that really he's a different man. And she, 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 she asks him, what are you doing? Are you dying for him? And he says, yes, and for his wife and for his daughter. And she looks at this sacrificial, loving act, and she says to him, she says to him, I can face this fear. She's on death row as well. She says, you know what? I've been absolutely terrified about this, but if I'm holding your hand, I think I'll be able to face anything with someone like you. It's such a a moving moment in that book. She says, hold my hand. I think I'll be able to face anything with somebody like you holding my hand. He wasn't even dying for her. And it filled her with great courage. Imagine what change can come into a human soul when you look at Jesus, who actually died for you, full of power and love who says, whatever happens in your life, it'll be for your good. I'm working all things for your good. Imagine how much courage that would bring into your life. In, uh, in his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn tells the story 
of William Borden, who was, uh, who was the heir to this massive Borden dairy estate in America in 1887. Borden, he, he, was, he, was a, he was a follower of Jesus and he decided to become a missionary to China. He, he, he sold the Borden Dairy Estate, gave what would be these days millions, hundreds of millions away to foreign missions. And he ended up en route to China, but he stopped off in Egypt to study Arabic. And while there, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died a month later at the age of 25. He gave all his riches away to become a missionary to a country to tell people there about the love of Christ. And if you go to his tombstone in Egypt, the epitaph reads this, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. When people look at your life, is that what they say about your life? Do they say, Toby, your life is, I can't make sense of it. Explain it for me. And I have to say, well, it's because I trust Jesus. And they're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Those of you who give up your Sunday afternoons to teach kids the Bible at buying kids, when you could be out there enjoying all that Sydney has to offer, You're living that apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There is no explanation for such a life. Those of you who are going through immense health problems and you're courageous, you're joyful, you're not being seduced away from Jesus at this moment, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for your life. Those of you who give your money to the cause of Christ, Why would you do that except for faith in Jesus Christ and seeing his cause go forth? Those of you who are waiting for a godly husband and a godly wife and you're not compromising apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for your life. Those of you who give up your Friday nights to go and serve at Rough Edges in Darlinghurst and Street Level in Surrey Hills, to hang out with those who don't have people to hang out with. Your Friday nights, your precious Friday nights, apart from faith in Christ, I can't explain your life. I'm just going to keep doing this because there are so many great stories in this room that I want to honor, right? Those of you who've had wounds reopened by an enemy recently, I've been talking to one of you about this, and you're facing this moment with great courage and wisdom, and grace, your life doesn't make sense without faith in Christ. Those of you who face financial uncertainty, and you're planning a wedding, and you're like, you know what, God's going to come through with this, that doesn't make sense unless faith in Christ is real. Those of you who spend hours in prayer each week for this church, this leader, the people of Sydney, with no tangible outcome from that, doesn't make sense apart from faith in Christ. If someone looked at your life, fine church, would they have to say, you know what, your life doesn't make any sense apart from the fact that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that, how, is that what makes sense of your life? 
That's what was meant to make sense of this great crowd of people who had never been trained for war, about to enter into this land God had promised to them. They're going in to these people with chariots and massive things, you know, and they're going into it confident. They're meant to be going into it, saying, you know what? Apart from faith in Christ, this makes utterly no sense. But you know what? He is with us. He's promised to do this. We've seen his power in the past, and we know he's going to bring us safely through. They were meant, we were meant to be able to say, you know what? Apart from faith in Christ, no explanation for this group of people. And yet, sadly, we have to say they really botched that up, didn't they? Fine church, we don't want to be people like that, do we? Let's take the future God has in store for us. And may people write on our gravestones, apart from faith in Christ, there was no explanation for such a life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the one who delivered the people from Egypt, who parted the Red Seas, who was the manna they fed on, the water they drank from, the shadow which covered them in the hot sun, and the one who would have fought for them as they walked into this land, and yet they piked, they chickened out, they ran back to their false god, their false master, their bad blankie. Father, we don't want to be people like that. We want to live lives which make absolutely no sense apart from the fact that you're our spiritual life raft. May the world, may our city see that actually we're utterly dependent on you. May we go forward absolutely bold, courageous, obeying that most, most recurring command in the Bible, not fearing because we know you're with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.